Welcome, friends, to this episode of The Five By, your one-stop shop for quick board game drops. My name is Jose, and I've been asked to share this extra special holiday episode with everyone. When it comes to the holidays, food is usually the first thing that pops into my mind, and having fillers in food isn't a good thing. But when it comes to gaming, you can have some great times with some filler games. In this episode, I'm going to highlight five games that are quick, easy to play, and are mostly language independent, so you can play with pretty much anybody. First up, we're going to have Christy, as she introduces us to a new hobby of flying kites. Then Ruel is going to push his luck in Super Mega Lucky Fun Box. Lydia Ray is going to show off her culinary capabilities in Taco Cat Goat Cheese Pizza. Luke is going to introduce one of my favorite classic games in Six Nimmint, I think that's how you pronounce it. And Laura is going to test our eyes with Illusion. On behalf of all of us, we want to thank you for all your time and support, and we all wish you the happiest of holidays. Greetings, listeners. I recently attended Gen Con for the first time since 2019, and I was really out of the loop on new releases this year, so I was just strolling around and taking it all in. I don't usually buy a ton of games at Gen Con, especially if I don't know anything about them, but this year a game called Kites by Floodgate Games really jumped out at me. I actually do fly kites as a side hobby, so of course it had that appeal, but also the concept by designer Kevin Hamano and art by Beth Sobel really made it a no-brainer for me. Kites is a short cooperative game in which your kites are represented by colored sand timers. Six sand timers to be exact, each with different amounts of sand ranging from 30 seconds to 90 seconds. The idea is that the sand timers are your kites flying in the sky and your goal is to keep them all going for the duration of the game. If any of the timers run out, your kite falls out of the sky and that's your lose condition. Kites comes with a deck of cards depicting the various colors of kites. On your turn, you play a card and flip the corresponding timer. That's the basic game right there. If you can play through the whole deck without any timers running out, you win. That being said, there are some wrinkles. Wrinkle number one, some of the cards have two colors on them, and when you play those cards, you must flip both timers. Sometimes this results in sticky situations where you really have to flip a particular color, and your only card that has that color also has a color that you don't want to flip, so by solving one problem, you create a new one. Wrinkle number two, the wild timer. There is a white sand timer that is considered wild. You can play a single kite of any color to flip the wild timer. Usually any kind of wild anything in a board game is the easiest option to manage, but I have found that I often get laser focused on the colored timers because they match the cards in my hand, and it can be easier than you'd think to just forget about the white timer. So you gotta keep that white timer going. Wrinkle number three. Speaking of the white timer, once the deck runs out, you have to finish playing your cards in hand without being able to flip the wild timer again. So you have at most 60 seconds to get rid of all your cards at the end of the game. I love games like Kites that are dead simple to learn, quick to play and try again if you lose, and flexible with player count. It goes from 2 to 6. The art on the cards looks great, and it draws the attention of people around you because the action is easy to follow. You can break this out with extended family at Christmas, coworkers at lunch, whatever it happens to be. Component-wise, obviously the sand timers are going to last a lot longer than the cards, but I don't know if I want to sleeve something so casual, so I'll have to think on that. 
Tweet at me at D6CMarie on Twitter and tell me if I should sleeve my copy of Kites. At any rate, this game is going to be similar to other timed co-ops such as Magic Maze or Fuse, in which you're going to try to beat it with a particular group of people, and as soon as you do, you'll probably feel like you're done and you'll move on to something else. Which brings us to wrinkle number four, challenge cards. Like any timed co-op worth its salt, Kites has a way to increase and customize the difficulty level for your group so that once you've beaten the basic game, you can spice things up and play again. You have an airplane card that temporarily bans talking, a card that makes all players swap some of their cards with one another, and a storm card that flips all the timers. Kites comes with several copies of each of these cards, and you can put as many or as few of them in the deck as you want. And if you want to make it easier instead of harder, you can take out the orange and purple sand timers and cards. Even with the challenge cards, the replayability of Kites is going to depend on what your group thinks of it. As with most timed games, Kites may not be everyone's cup of tea. But for what it's worth, my husband, who often feels stressed out by games with timers, said this one was more tolerable than others he's tried, probably because its lightness makes it less taxing and the theme is non-threatening. I've been enjoying it at Floodgate if you're listening. Next year, I want a Kites enamel pin, okay? I know it's not as big of a game as Sagrada, but let's make it happen. Kites is not a game that is going to keep you busy for very long, but it's a lot of fun and it's really accessible. Speaking of fun, I have been contributing to the 5x for three years now, and sadly, it's time for me to move on. I've enjoyed podcasting a great deal, and it has been a privilege to share alongside the other 5x hosts, who I'd like to thank, both for all their many contributions to the podcast and for having me be a part of it. Cheers to you all, and thanks so much as always for listening. Spectacular, fun, colossal, fantastic, tremendous. All of these adjectives are apt descriptions of the joy in each session of this bingo-style flip-and-write game. Reveal a number, mark it on one of your scorecards, and attempt to fill in rows or columns for bonuses or points. Score the highest amount of points, and you win! Hi friends, this is Ruel Gaviola. Let's take a look at Super Mega Lucky Box, a game by Phil Walker-Harding, with illustrations by Sergei Seidlitz. Super Mega Lucky Box was published in 2021 by GameRight. In Super Mega Lucky Box, each player gets a set of scorecards consisting of a 3x3 grid of random numbers 1 through 9. One player then reveals a card from the numbered card deck, and everybody crosses off that number on one of their scorecards. As the game progresses, players will complete rows and or columns on their scorecards and unlock bonuses. These can be a specific number, a number of their choice, a lightning bolt, a moon, or a star. Lightning bolts are used to change a number up or down, moons are scored for the most at the end, and stars are additional points. Each round consists of revealing nine random numbers. At the end of the round, players score any completed scorecards. Then, the number cards are reshuffled together. There are 18 cards made up of two sets of each number, one through nine, but only half are used each round. After four rounds, the player with the most points wins. Super Mega Lucky Box is the latest in a long line of hits from Phil Walker-Harding. I'm a longtime fan of Walker Harding, who excels at designing board games that are accessible by new gamers while surprising hobby gamers with their depth and replayabilities. From the genre-defining card drafting of Sushi Go to the underrated tile lane of Baron Park, Walker Harding games consistently deliver satisfying gaming experiences in the 20 to 45 minute range that appeal to all types of gamers. In Super Mega Lucky Box, Walker Harding goes back to his previous roll and write or flip and fill game silver and gold, and further refines it. In fact, 
Super Mega Lucky Box is so stripped down to its elements that it's basically bingo with a few twists. And by taking the basic gameplay of Silver and Gold and removing the polyomino aspect, Super Mega Lucky Box gets right to the best part of Silver and Gold more quickly. The combinations that happen as you fulfill goals on one card that allow you to mark off other boxes on another card. Players no longer need to figure out how they'll fill up their scorecards with the Tetra-style pieces in Silver and Gold. Super Mega Lucky Box keeps things pure. Simply cross out the number that's been revealed, then do it again, and again, and again, until you've completed a row, or column, or both. For nearly every row or column, there's a bonus that allows you to cross out another number or collect other bonuses. For example, you might finish one row that gives you a bonus number 5. You then cross out another 5 on the card or on another card. Perhaps the 5 you cross off gives you 2 lightning bolts and you completely fill out the card. Take the 2 lightning bolt tokens and on a future turn you may spend as many lightning bolts to change a number that's been revealed. For example, add 1 lightning bolt to make a 5 a 6. Or spend 2 lightning bolts to make a 5 a 3. And after you've completed a scorecard, set it aside to score at the end of the round. Bingo players never had this kind of luck mitigation, right? Best of all, there are many ways to score in the game. Complete a column or row with a star, and you'll score a point. If you manage to complete two or three stars in a round, you'll either score four or nine points respectively. Or perhaps you've completed a column that gives you a moon. Collect a moon token from the supply, and in a throwback to Sushi Go dessert scoring, the player with the most moons at the end of the game scores six extra points, and the player with the fewest moons loses six points. It's these bingo with gamer twists that I love most about Super Mega Lucky Box and has made it a game night staple in my home. There's something so satisfying about pulling off big multi-card combinations, crossing off numbers and or collecting bonuses from just a single revealed number card. And I think that's what Walker Harding realized when playing Silver and Gold. While it was fun puzzling out how to most efficiently use the polyominoes, the bigger excitement of that game was in being able to cross off extra spaces and also score palm tree bonuses. That's what Super Mega Lucky Box does so well. It gives players that dopamine hit of combo-tastic fun early and often throughout a game. For a 20-minute game, every player should have a few moments when they're unlocking and crossing off several extra numbers and completing cards for more points. The game plays 1-6 to six players, and you could combine two boxes to play up to 12 players. There's no real player interaction in a game. You're all just racing to complete your scorecards as fast as possible, since they're worth more points the earlier you finish them. No matter the player count, it's a quick game that can be played several times in a night, and yes, I'm speaking from experience. From its schoolhouse rock-style font to the straightforward and combo-tastic gameplay, Super Mega Lucky Box delivers on its box cover promise of a spectacularly fun game. In the words of the Brothers Murph, praise be. This has been Ruel Gaviola for the 5 by Thanks for listening. I'd love to hear your thoughts on Super Mega Lucky Box, so find me on Twitter and Twitch at Ruel Gaviola. That's R-U-E-L-G-A-V-I-O-L-A. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Lydia's Educational Game Corner, where I take a moment to showcase my game of the day and give you tips on how you can use it in your classroom or educational space in five minutes. Yes, five minutes. So let's get started. Today's game of the day is my absolute favorite. It's Taco Cat Goat Cheese Pizza by Dolphin Hat Games, designed by Dave Campbell. In this awesome family party game, each player places a card from their hand face up into the community pile while saying taco, cat, goat, cheese, pizza in player sequence. If your word matches the card, you slap your hand on the card. 
There are some special cards such as Gorilla, where you do special actions like bang on your chest, then slap the card. Narwhal, where you put your hands up like a horn, then slap the card. Or Groundhog, where you lightly bang on the table, then slap the card. Please keep in mind, make sure that you aren't the last person to slap the card or you will have to take the entire stack. Even if you flinch before slapping the card, that whole entire stack will be yours. First person to get rid of their entire stack wins. Taco Cat Go Cheese Pizza is a wonderful game to bring into your 2021 educational space. But before I get into some tips on how you, yes, you listening, can do this, here are a few important things to keep in mind before bringing Taco Cat Goat Cheese Pizza into your learning space. First, timing. How long do you have to play and teach this game? Taco Cat Goat Cheese Pizza is an extremely easy game to teach. In about less than five minutes, you can visually show how a round goes. The rules are super easy, and playtime takes about less than 15 minutes. If a player has a question, you have time to answer or clarify with the rule book, which is just basically one tiny page, or visually with a card. Please note, there is never a bad question, so make sure to prep your gameplay with the expectation that if you have questions, please ask them. Second, the age and grade. This game is well-rounded and so appropriate for all grade levels. I suggest elementary on up. And lastly, modifications. Not everyone learns at the same level and rate as others. Please keep that in mind when introducing the game to players and don't be afraid to modify the game to fit the group you're playing with. I suggest definitely making a player aid or having a Google slide presentation in the background of what you can do during a turn. I had the Taco Cat Goat Cheese Pizza Box upright the entire time, so my students had a visual aid of what the sequence was to say during the game. All right, everyone. So now let's talk about how Taco Cat Goat Cheese Pizza. And if you hear me saying this, this was actually the beat that my kids, my sixth grade kiddos came up with when we were playing the game to help them remember. We're going to talk about how this can be used into the classroom or in your own educational space. Not only can board games be for fun, but they can also provide a great learning experience. Since I am a drama and public speaking teacher, I'm going to talk about that first. If I taught this game in my drama and public speaking classroom, I would have my kiddos practice body language with this game. And we would practice using gestures. So when they play the game, they would have to only be playing it with gestures where they would have to, for example, if they had the cat card. They would have to use cat gestures to mean cat. Or they would have to create sounds to identify each word to practice verbal communication like ba for goat or meow for cat. For languages such as like Spanish, Latin, German, French, you could have your students say each card in a specific language you teach. So for Spanish, if you popped up with cat, you could say gato. If you're teaching it, you can even create a version if it was with colors. There's so many opportunities that you can modify this game. It's just so cool. Well, everyone, there are so many things you could do, but so little time. But hopefully these tips will help you begin your journey of bringing the education into your gaming experience. 
Thank you for tuning in to Lydia's Educational Game Corner. Till next time, happy learning and happy gaming. The lowest five blocks of downtown Seattle are built on fill. When the city was founded, the ground under Seattle's current waterfront was smelly, muddy tide flats. Sections of the city were a few stories lower than the current street level, and during the Seattle Underground Tour, you get to see former storefronts which are now buried basement levels. While the city has done its best to shore things up over the last hundred years or so, the filler upon which that part of the city stands is notoriously sketchy, and if one of the fault lines surrounding Seattle ever unleashes a massive earthquake, its likely liquefaction will just swallow that whole part of town. It's a long-standing tradition to side-eye the composition of your average hot dog. What worries people the most, it seems, is the idea that their favorite tube meat is primarily composed of stomach linings and eyeballs. In reality, the ground-up animal bits share almost equal space with fillers like cereal binder, so even bad meat isn't really all meat. Many products make a point of advertising they don't contain fillers, so you can be sure your quote-unquote all-beef hot dog is more hooves and intestines than flour and oatmeal. Fillers, in general, have a bad reputation. Even the word filler now implies something which simply takes up space without thought to consequence. At best, fillers are devoid of substance or value. At worst, they're potentially actively harmful. That idea has infiltrated the minds of board gamers to the degree that filler has become a pejorative. On the entitled gamer scale of value assessments, filler now occupies a low rung just above mass market and below gateway. This attitude is, frankly, absurd. Fillers, like any other style of game, fall on a spectrum from terrible, like Cards Against Humanity or Phase 10, to amazing, like Six Nimmed, a 1994 card game published by Amigo Spiel and designed by the always astounding Wolfgang Kramer. You know, the guy behind industry flops like the, the Mask Trilogy and El, El Grande. Six Nymphed is just two poker decks mashed together, numbered, weirdly, from 1 to 104. Each card also hosts a number of bullheads used for scoring. The purpose behind this particular aesthetic choice escapes me, but it doesn't really matter because these symbols could be anything, and this just happens to be what they chose. In a round of Six Nymphed, everyone is dealt 10 cards. Four cards are laid out on the table to start the rows into which everyone will play. On each turn, players place one card from their hand face down in front of them, then everyone reveals simultaneously. Those cards are then added to the face-up rows in numerical order, following two rules. One, each card must be placed in ascending order in its destination row, and two, each card must be placed into the row with the smallest gap between it and the card at the end of the row. If you're forced to place your card in a row already containing five cards, you place all the cards in that row into your score pile and start a new row with the card you just played. You can also voluntarily scoop any row by playing a card lower in value than every present row, therefore having no legal placement at the end of an existing row. The kicker? You absolutely don't want cards. The object of Six Nymphed is to keep your score low. At the end of each round, when everyone's played all 10 of their cards, everyone counts up the bullheads in their score pile, adding that total to their running score. The game ends when any player accumulates 66 points, and the player with the lowest score wins. The simultaneous play and ascending initiative order in Six Nymphed require careful planning each round, not only of the card you play, but of what's left in your hand and how they all relate to the board state. Is the gap between your card and that row of four small enough that another player won't sneak in between and force you to scoop the row? When does it make sense to dump a super high value card to effectively cap a row? Is this the right moment to play my four and scoop a low bullhead row, taking that small point hit to avoid a larger one? At every turn, the board composition feels like it's screwing you over. And if it doesn't, rest assured somebody will play a card to make sure it does. It's a game filled with cries of, Son of a! and, Aw, screw you, Daryl. 
punctuated by those miraculous rounds where you score zero in the face of everyone else's 20s and 30s. The tension is riveting, the highs are elating, and the lows are hilarious rather than punitive. Although it's ostensibly a filler, after a few plays, Six Nymph reveals surprising layers of strategic crunchiness. At the start, I lost a lot of games. Then something clicked and I just got it, making it a game I'll play any time on its own merits. The derision of fillers baffles me. In board games, the word filler is intended to define a shorter game used to fill the time between longer, more complex ones. Alternately, they're used to ramp up or wind down a game night. The negative connotation is born of insidious elitism, driving the idea that fillers aren't worthy of our time. That idea is built on the same careless, shaky foundation as Seattle's waterfront, and Six Nymphed is the earthquake that sinks it. My name is Luke, and you can find my analogies breaking down on BGG and Instagram at PixelArtMeeple, or on my website PixelArtMeeple.com. Thanks for listening, and happy gaming! Back in February 2015, a photo of a dress went viral, when some people saw it as gold with white stripes, and others saw it as black with blue stripes. I was team gold all the way. And if you've never seen a picture of the dress, you might want to pause here because, spoiler alert, I was wrong. According to science people, team gold brains interpreted the blue tones in the dress as a shadow and tried to autocorrect for it like a color filter in our brains. I remember staring at that photo, trying to force my brain to see blue and black. And although I wasn't successful, it was fun to battle against my own perceptions. And I get that same feeling whenever I play Illusion. Originally published by NSV in 2018, Illusion is a two-to-five-player card game with artwork by Oliver Freudenreich and Sandra Freudenreich. I should mention that the copy I have is the one published by NSV, but if you live in North America, the publisher here is Pandasaurus Games. So the game's designer is Wolfgang Varsh, and if that name sounds familiar to you, it's probably because Varsh has been putting out the hits over the past year with games like The Mind, Ganshan Clever, and Quacks of Quedlinburg. In Illusion, players take turns arranging cards into a row in order of more or less of a particular color. The four possible colors are red, yellow, green, and blue, and each card has a unique image made up of those four colors, plus a white background. But you'll only need to sort by one of those colors each round, so it must be super easy, right? Except that the images are also optical illusions. So here's how it works. At the beginning of each round, you flip over the top card in the arrow deck. The color of the arrow tells you whether to sort the cards by red, yellow, blue, or green, and the direction it's pointing indicates ascending order. At the beginning of your turn, you take the top card from the illusion deck and place it anywhere in the row. If one of your opponents thinks the row is out of order, they can challenge it, and everyone loves a challenge in this game. On the back of each illusion card is an answer key that lists the percentage of each color on that card. For example, red 8%, blue 21%, etc. So when there's a challenge, everyone is joining in and flipping over the cards all at once to see how well the group did. Now, if any card in the row is out of order, not just the last one played, the person who raised the challenge collects the arrow card. Otherwise, the person who played the last card collects it. Then you clear the row, draw a new arrow card, and start a new round. The first player to collect three arrow cards wins the game. Illusion is simple, but not easy. There are so many design choices I appreciate about this game. First, there's almost no setup time. You shuffle two decks of cards, flip over an arrow card, and then place the top card from the Illusion deck onto the table to start a row. That's it. Also, there's no downtime. When it's someone else's turn, you're trying just as hard as they are to figure out where that card should go. And difficult cards are a shared agony. While your opponent is waffling back and forth about where to place that eye-twisting image, you're doing the exact same thing in your head. And when they finally let go of the card, you have to decide just how confident you are about your own opinion. As a group, you're squinting and groaning and laughing together. And as the row gets longer, things get more interesting. 
You all start eyeballing each other, knowing there's a good chance that at least one of the cards is wrong. Should you say something now or wait for another card or two to increase your odds? But if you wait, someone else can beat you to it. Maybe you decide to go for it. And once the cards are all flipped, you realize that every single one of them is correct. But a weird thing happens. Instead of being disappointed that someone else gets the arrow, you're shocked and kind of proud that the group managed to get 12 cards on the table without making a single mistake. And that's the beauty of the game. Even though Illusion has winners and losers, that never feels like the point of playing. You'll keep an eye on how many arrows your opponents have and factor that into your decision whether to make a challenge, but mostly, the arrows feel like a timer mechanism that lets you know when the game is over. And challenges aren't confrontational. They're fun. When someone challenges your last move, that gives you a chance to collect an arrow. Plus, you're just as curious as everyone else whether all the cards are in the right order. The real tension in this game comes from you battling against yourself. Just like with that photo of the blue and black dress, when I play Illusion, I'm trying to see what's actually there and not the story my brain is busy constructing. So that tiny bit of red circle peeking out from the back, it doesn't matter that it's covered by a bunch of other shapes. My brain knows it's there and keeps telling me that the circle is very big, which must mean lots of red, even though the color barely appears on the card. Speaking of red, the one drawback of Illusion is the choice of colors. I haven't played it with anyone who's colorblind, but based on some research I was able to find online, the hue of red and green used on the cards can be problematic for people with red-green colorblindness. Also, there's not much contrast between the green and blue. I have to play it in a well-lit room or I have a hard time telling them apart. Now for the big questions. Should you play this game? Absolutely, without a doubt. Should you buy it? I don't know. I want to say yes because Illusion is such a clever and well-designed game. It works well for all player counts and it's a snap to teach. So what's with the hesitation? Well, whenever I teach it to people, they get really into it, have a good time, and want to play two or three games in a row. Then that's it. The novelty wears off and they move on. So even though the game design offers a lot of replayability, it's not something people tend to revisit. On the other hand, it's one of my go-to games when I'm playing with a new group of people especially if there are less experienced players in the mix. You can pick up a copy of Illusion for about 15 US dollars, and it only takes up about as much space as two decks of playing cards stacked side by side. So if you're like me, if you enjoy introducing people to the hobby and you keep a stash of lightweight and portable games that are easy to teach to anyone and have a broad appeal, Illusion is a solid game to have in your collection. And that's all I got. I'm Laura Donovan Bannister, and you can chat with me on Twitter at LauraWroteIt. Hashtag Team Gold. You've been listening to The Five By, your monthly source for board game reviews. Follow us on Twitter at Five By Games. Like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash five by games. Join our BGG Guild number 2810. Listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And check out our website at fivebygames.com. If you like what we do here or want to support our work, visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash five by games. Thanks for listening.